0: Welcome to Dungeon Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 8 of DDG Pod, where we welcome to the guild hall a designer all the way from the United Kingdom. Here to discuss the great employment opportunities available to us in deep space. Whether alive yet or not, many of us fondly remember the dark and neon science fiction films of the 1980s, which brought us humanity's interstellar future, traveling the stars in huge metal hulks. Often these films showed us the terrors and perils that space travel would offer such a fragile and inefficient species as ourselves. Likewise, this game designer seeks to warn us that we will all have a high chance of mortality when exposed to any of a number of inherent dangers off-world, challenges for which we are ill-equipped, both in body and in mind. So without further ado, let's get on to our main event. Today, on Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered an executive from the board of one of the most successful interstellar corporations, a person who is responsible for maximizing the company's profits at what is considered to be very reasonable cost, and the designer of the industrial science fiction role-playing game, Those Dark Places. Jonathan Hicks or do you prefer John or Jonathan Uh, Jonathan's absolutely fine thank you it's very formal okay (laughs) Jonathan welcome to the show
1: Uh, thank you very much for the invite I really appreciate it
0: Absolutely. And what uh, dark place are you calling in from?
1: I'm from Northampton in England. It's a little bit wet at the moment. Well, it's England, so that's kind of the default. But yeah, I'm originally from the Midlands of England, a very historical, sort of, very very full of history, where Tolkien used to live, where you used to hang out. That's where I'm from. But then we moved down to Northampton. I've been here for about three or four years.
0: Excellent. What took you down from the Midlands to Northampton then? A
1: job opportunity for my wife, which we couldn't pass up. I was working for a magazine at the time and working from home. Uh, Then we, we moved down here. I decided that I wanted to spend more time writing because I was doing a lot of hours uh, at the magazine so I thought I wanted to spend more time writing and getting into the game design which I was really enjoying so I got myself a, a nice little tidy job to keep me supported as far as bills were concerned and then spent a lot of my time in game design so yeah it was a, a good move for both of us I think Excellent How different is
0: Northampton from the Midlands?
1: Northampton I don't know much about it I'm, I've been here for, for more than three years which is quite embarrassing so sorry about that Northampton I've been here for, for just over three years and Litchfield to me was there's a lot of history in Litchfield going back to I mean it's mentioned in the Doomsday book I think it goes back all the way for, no, more than sort of 1500 years it's got the country's only three spire gothic cathedral built in the 1100s and Tolkien used to hang around there um, with his mates so the, the whole place is just full of history and it was the whole area the forests surrounding it the towns the, the numerous churches I've, I've got a massive uh, love for old churches and cathedrals and it was just really really inspirational but then of course you stay in one place for too long and the, that inspiration turns into very, very very samey and since we moved to Northampton I've seen loads of new things discovered a whole new food scene from all over the world which is absolutely amazing to me and loads of different kind of history then it's that kind of reignites the kind of creative process you start to get inspired by new things so yeah moving down here the whole change of pace and the whole change of scenery really fired up the imagination and got me got, well really got me going again
0: excellent and so i take it you started gaming before you moved right oh yeah back in 1983
1: i started and i think like with every uk boy of that time i was what uh, 14 years old i started with the fighting fantasy game books so i picked up sit of chaos and then fell in love with that and started doing other stuff i was already a massive star wars and science fiction and fantasy fan i would already read tolkien's works my introduction to tolkien was the bbc radio play and then a year later 1984 a friend of mine said have you ever heard of dungeons and dragons and i bought the well i went into a game at the dungeons and dragons club at my old school netherstow comprehensive school in room 1a Run by Mr. Bowen. Thank you, Mr. Bowen, for introducing me to role playing. That was 1984. So I went out and bought the Red Box Basic, you know, with the Larry Elmore cover, the fact, It's I, I bought all five of those boxes and then just went on from there. Spent three or four years kind of not really knowing what I was doing and drifting from game to game. But then when the Star Wars role playing game came out in 1987, I bought that. And because a lot of my friends were all Star Wars fans, it was very easy to get a game together. It was very, very focused. And after that, my role playing just exploded. And uh, yeah, I was doing it as often as I possibly could.
0: Excellent. Okay. And- So that would have been the West End game, Star Wars? That's right. The original first
1: edition D6, which I have to say is still my favorite version of it because it's got a fantastic rule book. The rule system is fast and intuitive and simple. I do like the other rule books that came after that, but I think that you kind of bloated the rules a little bit. It didn't really need that. And also, as well as a Star Wars fan, we didn't know much about the Star Wars universe and those source books and what have you really expanded the Star Wars universe. Well, it became what we know as the expanded universe. So yeah, that was just amazing to me. As a Star Wars fan, and I was learning more about the Star Wars universe and I was having my fun time doing the role-playing games. So, uh, yeah, it was absolutely huge. It was a massive, massive impact on not only my life, as a Star Wars fan, but also as a gamer as well.
0: Awesome. Would you say that you prefer science fiction role playing over fantasy or? I do prefer science fiction. Fantasy, I think I,
1: I find a little bit more satisfying, if that, if that makes any sense. That kind of sense of heroic quests, I, I, I absolutely love it. I mean, Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, first edition is my favourite game, because I'm very British, which means I'm very cynical. So, <laughs> that kind of a game is is absolutely spot on for me. It's it's grim and it's grimy and it's dirty. Chances you are you're going to die because everyone dies. As an angst-filled teenager, that was spot on for me. But at the same time I was really enjoying the big heroic games as well but science fiction offered me something completely different and my sort of nerd background is science fiction so that's just what I prefer gaming I could get big stories out of fantasy because fantasy was very very accessible but I found sometimes you'd find yourself a little bit limited and then years later you'd be doing those same you'd be playing in a different setting or a different rule system but doing the same heroic things whereas science fiction just offered me an entire galaxy so you know I I think yeah science fiction is my favourite for sure.
0: Excellent okay and so do you have any good stories? That you remember from back in the days of playing Weg Star Wars or anything like that?
1: <laughs> yeah, a uh, lot. A lot of them. I remember I was a teenager, late teenager, early teens. And then when I discovered the fun of role-playing, I then discovered the fun of going out and partying a lot as well. So we kind of mixed the two quite a lot, which probably wasn't healthy. But yeah, the Star Wars games, I remember Sunday night Star Wars games, we used to have, we set up this entire sector called the Settling Sector, which believe it or not, has actually been mentioned in official Star Wars. I think it's Build the Millennium Falcon. And there's this little section, because a friend of mine actually wrote a lot of the Build the Millennium Falcon issues. And yeah, he was mentioning, putting little snippets of the Settling Sector that we created as fans into an official Star Wars product which was quite funny and a lot of fun but yeah we built this shoe this sector and we had lots of different characters we, we were doing uh, Underworld characters so we spent a lot of time because the thing that fascinated me about Star Wars was, was the cantina scene and the whole Jabba the Hut stuff and you know, I wanted to learn more about the Underworld so that's what we did a lot of the games that we ran were with smugglers and pirates and you know well smugglers with a heart of gold of course because they wanted to be heroes so yeah we were doing a load and load and load of Underworld stuff so yeah we, we'd intrude a little bit onto the rebellion and empire thing but basically all our games consisted of all our characters basically trying to pull off jobs trying not to get shot by the empire but there was a lot of internal politics as well so we had different player characters trying to double cross other player characters or trying to get one up on them or the whole every sunday night was just who's going to fall out with who next it was just absolutely wonderful but i mean i could write a novel based on well, I did write a novel based on a lot of the stories that we did in the games. So, yeah, you shouldn't have asked me that question. I'm going to go on now for about three or four hours. So we should move on, really.
0: <laughs> well, now I want to hear about the novel.
1: <laughs> well, the novel was called Racers. I never actually, I never got it published. I wrote a novel. It was called Racers. It was called Racers Part One, Shadow of the Past. And it was set in, in the underworld of illegal pod racing. And this human guy was the only guy that could do it. And, and a bit like Anakin Skywalker, he was also, uh, he, had, he was slightly force sensitive. And there was an, an ancient who was basically he, the reason why he's been living for so long he wasn't actually a Sith he was like a Sith type character called Nadine and the reason why he lived for so long was because he would transfer his life force into bodies but it would only actually work if these people were Force sensitive and then he finds out that this kid who's a pod racer is Force sensitive so he hunts him down to transfer his life force into him because his body's dying at this point point. and it's basically about him and then finding out his dad was a grand moth and then the Empire Empire involved invade and it was all based on a, on a short-lived role-playing game uh, adventure that that we did lasted for about five or six weeks and then i just took all the elements of that and then combined them all into a story i have absolutely no idea what happened to it a, i remember my old computer dying and i lose lost loads of files and to be honest with you i've not really given it much thought until just now that's actually made me quite depressed so thanks for that <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <but> I'm... <laughs> Thank you for uh, sharing with us. And I'm sorry, uh, what was the name of the location that you were working with? Uh, the Settlin Sector.
1: Yeah, it was called the Settlin. S-E-T-N-I-N. If you type that in, Settlin Sector, you'll probably come up with really old websites and we write about 120 short stories, me and some friends of ours, and which we got published on, the, on this website. All unofficial, of course. Uh, a friend of mine wrote a novel. I wrote a novel and it was all interlinked, all different stories, all different characters, all interlinked with all different gang leaders in this one area. And then it became so... About I think we designed more than a thousand different characters and hundreds of planets and locations where different things were happening because we were running this game from 1987 all the way up to about 1996 so about nine years worth of gaming and we're doing it sometimes twice a week so that's a lot of games to get in with lots of different people coming and going in the games so we'd incorporate ideas from all over and it got so big we had to make it a sector of space so we called it the Cedapod Cluster and put it sort of slightly out of the galaxy so you had to travel out of the galaxy to get to it because it had all its own, it had its own uh, sectors and it had its own warfare then another sector in Invaded, it had its own battles so what we were trying to do basically was that the main Star Wars universe was having its own problems so you had the rebellion against the Empire and the way that we looked at it is that we wanted what we were creating to be part of the overall Star Wars universe so we had this rule where none of our characters could be as famous or as powerful as any of the main characters from Star Wars and nothing that they did or nothing that our sector did could intrude or change on anything that was happening in the official Star Wars universe so even though we had the Empire turn up to the set of our cluster there were basically using it as a a jumping off point and using it to to get money and they were being fleeced by gang lords and stuff like that so we had those elements of the empire there but it had nothing what was happening in the greater galaxy had nothing to do with what we were doing in our own little sector of space so we didn't intrude on them and they didn't really intrude that much on us apart from the recognizable icons like stormtroopers and star destroyers yeah so when we were playing our games it all felt very real and very involved with the official star wars universe and that's how i like to write my games as well i like to make the players to feel as involved with that universe as possible possible
0: awesome yeah and i would say that that shows before we move on to your game mm-hmm. i did want to ask in addition to wegg star wars did you play any other science fiction rpgs or any other games of note
1: yeah we, i mean we were doing we did all the main ones so we didn't think like traveler traveler was great fun that was really really good and then we did lots of games that were coming out in the 90s at the time i was a great fan of mutant chronicles that was a lot of fun and then when alternity came out as well at the end of the 90s that was great i really really enjoyed that really really good but we always came back to star wars and if we didn't come back to star wars we'd come back to the d6 system because the d6 system was just basically it was part of our dna at that point so it was literally ingrained in everything that we did at that time so if we were starting up a new game then we would basically just say okay how can we make this work in the d6 system and i had the <laughs> d6 system rule book from the from the uh, mid 90s and that's what we do but a lot of the time we just went back to the star wars first edition because that star wars first edition you can actually use it as a main rule book and do anything you wanted with it you could rip out all the technical skills and use it as a fantasy game the force skills you can use as magical powers and it worked on so many different levels and that's what made it. It's so attractive and it's so well written as well greg costican did an amazing job of communicating the rules and also the enthusiasm for Wars through the pages of that game it's really it, it, like i say influenced me for for years to come it still does now
0: and i would say that shows in this game as well <laughs> so how did you go from role player to game designer can you explain that progression for us
1: I'll be honest with you the game designer I kind of fell into I was really really enjoying games but then of course I I got married we had had a son then my life turned into a career because I I had plenty of time to game but then of course I I started doing well at my job so you know things happen and you start to do well then you start running out of time so I found I didn't have any time to actually play as much as I used to so any spare time I did have I was I ended up writing so I was basically spending a lot of time just writing articles which ended up getting serialized on rpg.net as observations from the gamers chair and and these are just silly little articles about things I've observed over the years about games and gaming as a games master and as a player and there's some hints and tips but it's mainly just about what I, how I feel about role-playing in certain areas and then when I started to get into games design and I first started getting into games design because I got a little bit bored of what I was doing at the time and I just fancied experimenting with different things so I first started writing a game called Spirit which was again a big science fiction game based on a setting that I'd created called League of Seven and I got a bit overzealous about it and I thought this is fantastic it's the greatest thing I've ever done I'm going to share this which is probably a mistake, but it wasn't was a mistake at the time it was it was half finished i'd done placeholder artwork and it just didn't look very good the system was so broken it was just absolutely ridiculous but i think that was my exuberance and my i was getting overexcited about the game i still love the league of seven setting and i will do something with it but yeah i got overexcited and then i spent loads of time trying to design stuff for my own edification and but then i thought how about if i started writing something for an existing system and i end up writing an adventure or two for Aryan games for fighting fantasy and fighting fantasy is what i grew up with so it's the thing that got me into role-playing and i'd run some fighting fantasy games role-playing games when i was younger and i got in touch with a little pitch and uh, and they said yeah and i was like ah oh, okay which time took me by surprise so <laughs> okay then i'll write it so i wrote this adventure the floating dungeon of varicose and uh, yeah that got published and, and i kind of got the taste of blood then role-playing game design blood so i thought i'm going to do some more so i did some more for them and then i started approaching other people you know how would you like me to do this how would you like me to try that and because i'm new and nobody really knew who i was people were like yeah thanks but but no thanks so then i thought well in that case then i'll design my own game and yeah that's how i fell into into designing those dark places which i started in 2010 which a completely different system which i designed it was basically a hangover from what i'd already designed for the league of seven for spirit so by default straight away it didn't work but again i was getting ahead of myself because i wanted to write a rule book in the same vein as star wars rule book and what have you though even the ghostbusters rule book the original one it it had this sense of exuberance, this sense of excitement and it really communicated to the player and to the gm what kind of game it wanted to be what sort of game that you should be running and that's what i I wanted to try and emulate and i started with those dark places in a completely different place and then it's completely different to the game that's come out now
0: excellent so can you tell us a little bit more about where the idea for those dark places began how did you land on the sort of concept of this game
1: i think i would become a little bit burnt out by heroic science fiction so star wars star Trek, that sort of thing i love it still don't get me wrong and i'd play it to the heaven's end but i think i got a little bit burnt out by it and my favorite film of all time is alien and i think that i think that goes without saying i think if you know me then you know that alien is just to me it's just a work work of genius I saw it in 1982 when I was 11 years old. Not in the cinema. I had to sneak a TV upstairs to watch it late at night. And on a Sunday night at 9:30, because uh, I remember the trailer, the trailer for it on the network TV. The alien knows that you're afraid and it knows where you are. And I was like, "Oh my god, I've got to see this film. It looks fantastic." I'm 11 years old and I'm absolutely crapping myself over a trailer. I've got to see this film. And I watched it, and yeah, it terrified the absolute crap out of me. I was watching a black and white TV, and you know how many how deep the shadows are in Alien. So that kind of just exacerbated that entire thing on my own, hiding in my bedroom under a duvet, and it was just like oh this is the i can't watch this film ever again it was just absolutely terrified me and then a few years later aliens was coming out and i was 15 years old and we watched Alien again just before we went to see Aliens and went to see it on its opening night and that totally blew me away I mean it's an amazing an amazing film it's my favourite action film of the 1980s although with one proviso even though I think Aliens is an amazing action film and it influenced me for years to come I do think it wasn't a very good sequel thematically to the original but I came to realise that in later life but that's a completely different conversation anyway and I've probably already set a load of fanboys off screaming so we went to see that and then a few years later Alien 3 came out and then oh, yeah okay and then I kind of enjoyed it. Better it was the assembly cut, and then Alien Resurrection came out, and that was it. Then I was done with Alien. I was like, "No, nah, I'm finished now. Sorry, I can't can't watch anymore." And then the Alien Quadrilogy came out. It should be the trilogy, but they called it the Quadrilogy box set. It came out early two thousands. And I watched it and the making of, and it was then that I realised that's it. This is my favourite film of all time. And I just watched it and watched it and watched it over and over again. And, and the making of especially. There were three amazing documentaries for filmmakers, if you're, if you're an aspiring filmmaker. And that is The Making of Alien from the quadrilogy box set. All the extras from The Lord of the Rings, extended editions, which are just incredible. Absolutely incredible. And Dangerous Days, The Making of Blade Runner. If, if anybody's looking to get into filmmaking, watch those all those documentaries. It tells you everything you need to know. Absolutely amazing. And that was it. I was just, that was Alien was my favourite film. And then about 10, 11 years ago, I was getting into space horror. because I just played Dead Space and Dead Space 2. So everything was about space horror. It's like, this is it. Space horror, brilliant. So when I started writing Those Dark Places, it was space horror. You're going to space, you're going to fight monsters, and there's going to be guns and plasma rifles. And I had a list of 100 different weapons with 10 times of different kinds of ammunition and blah, blah, blah. And then the more I wrote that, the more I realised it was just walls of text and just me getting stupidly excited about something. I was like, oh, God. And then I'd read it back to myself and a couple of years later, thinking, what the hell was I thinking? I even put it out for people to have a look at and play with. I am thinking, what was I thinking? I just I wanted to get back to the essence. Well, I wanted to get back to the essence of Alien. If you think about it, Aliens is what people think about. And the Colonial Marines is what people think about when they think about Alien now. They think about shooting the alien, going to hives, or that sort of queen aliens, or that sort of stuff, or different types of alien, sort of dolphin alien, or spider alien, or orangutan alien, or what have you. So they keep thinking, about. well, that's a lot of what they focus on. What I was wanting to focus on was the original Alien and what made that unique and what made Alien unique was atmosphere and the tenseness that it builds and that's what I wanted to try and convey in those dark places so it started out as this big grand idea with loads and loads of stats lots and lots of pages and then I whittled it all the way down to this really really rules like system focusing on story narrative and, and characters and the setting more than anything and then I thought how am I going to communicate that setting to the readers and the gamers and that's when I came up with the idea of doing it like a, an interview like you were speaking to company representative I was trying trying to capture what Greg Costican did in the original Star Wars game and just that sheer enthusiasm, the way that he spoke to you like he, like he was your mate and that he was a fellow fan. And yeah, I'm a fan. You're, you're a fan. I'm a fan too. Let me tell you about this great game. And that's how he felt like he was talking to you. So I thought I'd try that approach. But make it stuffy, formal, a little bit cynical, maybe a little bit quirky. And I know it's a bit of a love it or hate it kind of way of writing. But no, that's what I went with in the end, and that was that.
0: Okay. Can you just give us a little description of what the original system was like and why it wasn't working? The original system was based on a D...
1: My favourite die of all time is the D twelve. You can do so much with the D twelve. It can do everything with the D twelve. It can be a D two, a D three, a D four, and a D six, and a D twelve, and you can't go wrong. And in fact, my, the, a new system that I'm working at the moment it takes all that into account, and it was great. And then I changed that to two D six because I was a bit of a traveller fan. And it was like a 2D6 roll high sort of uh, thing. And then it turned into a 2D6 roll low. And I thought, let's try this with the D20. And it, was just, and it just got out of hand. You know what I mean? I was so focused on and, and how the rules worked. I'd completely lost focus on what the game was about and what, on what it was that I wanted to do. And it got bloated. It got really, really bloated. And in fact, if you type in Those Dark Places and go to RPG Geek, you will see the original Those Dark Places on there the space horror role playing game with the silly font and I don't even know what happened to the rules I'm sure somebody out there on the hard drive somewhere at the bottom of the ocean must have a copy of the original rules uh, because I'm sure they would have worked after a a little while but I think I just got frustrated with them I think I just got annoyed and I I didn't feel I was making any progress and spending so much time focusing on rules and making them work and making them huge and trying to cover every eventuality you just can't do that in a role playing game you shouldn't have to do that in a role playing game so yeah that's when I turned my uh, attention to a simpler system. And I was playing with something called, it is going back a few years now, I wrote something called To the Stars, Stellar Cadets. And I, I challenged myself can I write a role playing game in six hours? Can I design, write, and illustrate a role playing game in six hours? Well, I couldn't illustrate it, so I got those off a free website. And it was all these old 1950s Space Explorer images from, from comics and cartoons. And uh, so, yeah, I wrote this game, and it was a bit silly, and it used a similar system to what you've got now in the Odd system, which is what I use for those dark places. And then I, I, I did that, and I released it, and it was a bit silly and people liked it and the, but then the more i looked at it i more realized there's something i can do with this and then i realized i'm focusing too much on the rules and not enough on the game if that makes sense so if i do something where the rules are simple then i can focus more on what the game is about and not on the rules and that's when i went in the rules like direction and to be honest with you the older i get the less inclined i am to remember rules and how they work and and be surrounded by dozens of books around with different charts and tables because that just slows things down and if you're trying to create tension and trying to tell a story the last thing you want to do is for everything to grind to a halt because the mechanics have kicked in. Especially in combat, that just so frustrating. You've got six players at the table, and poor old player number five has got to sit there for 25 minutes, whilst everybody else has a certain No, That just rips the tension out of the room. So, yeah, I thought, keep it simple, then keep the tension factor up, and make it unpredictable. And that's what I did. And I introduced... The partial success rule. So, yeah, you've succeeded, but something might go wrong because the D6 allowed for that sort of thing to happen. And the pressure rule as well, I brought that in just to make things a bit more interesting and to give people something to be nervous about. But the one thing that I did do it was leave stuff out. And I know a lot of people probably don't like it, but I left a lot of detail out about the setting and I left a lot of detail out about the threats, like the creatures and what have you going to come up against. And I did that on purpose because if I produced a rule book and the player got hold of it and read through it and he starts going through a bestiary, he's going to know what to expect. He's going to know what's going to happen. If you, if you put a front cover on there with a big tentacled monster coming out I think they're gonna sort of know what to expect. And that takes a little bit of the surprise out of it. If I don't include any of that, and I do explain this in the book why, I put the power back into the GM's hands and they can do whatever they want with it. So when you sit down at that table, you don't have a definitive setting, but you have a recognizable setting, especially if you know those science fiction movies of the seventies and eighties, and you don't quite know what's gonna happen. So is it hallucinations, is it aliens, is it psychotic deranged murderers, is it genetic experiments? You simply don't know, and I think that's what gives it its edge.
0: Excellent. And I think you're right about that I think that is a great decision. I'm seeing that more and more in game design today mm-hmm. and coming to appreciate it more and more than I would have when I was younger which is yep. you know the absence where you know you're filling the voids yourself and I think that that's yep. really beneficial to the game.
1: I think that's what my D&D so great originally because a lot of people didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what was between those pages. Only one person got hold of that rule book and he was sat there telling you what to do and that's what made it ex- for me is I'm sure it does as well for people today I'll probably just lost touch but for me as a kid that's what inspired me and that's what excited me because I didn't know what to expect and I think that's what I was trying to recapture. That's what I liked about D&D 5th edition even though I don't play it. It was putting a lot of power back into the DM's hands so they could make a lot of decisions about what was happening and, and why it happened. And that's what I was trying to do with Those Dark Places. I was trying to put the creativity back into there so that you wouldn't have to sit there and go through pages of tables and what have you. And that makes it exciting not only for you as the GM because you have to GM by the seat of your pants. It then also makes it exciting for the players because they don't know what to expect.
0: Absolutely. I have a 5e group that I run and they know the rules and the monsters. And everything so well at this point that I have to do things like go back to older editions to pull things from to surprise them with. To
1: be honest with that, and that's a great thing as well. That, that you've been playing so long and people are so dedicated to the game. So I was the same as somebody who played Rollmaster, believe it or not, he memorized a hell of a lot of Rollmaster. He even knew what some of your roles were in the critical tables. I mean, that's just takes that takes a brain power that's beyond my capability. But this is Rollmaster we're talking about. This took me six hours to create a character. But um, and that's you know what I mean. And it took me six hours to create the character, and he died within the first 20 minutes of the game, so it's what I like to call six for 20, complete waste of my time. So the, um, <laughs> no, no, honestly, what happened was we created this character, spent six and a half hours creating them, and then we went in, and then apparently I didn't take the situation so seriously in the first 20 minutes of the game, so the GMPC assassin stabbed me in the back to show how dangerous he was, and my character died. And then he do, he couldn't understand why I didn't turn up for the, for the game the next week. I'm not spending another six hours creating a character uh, just for him to get shot in the face just to show how cool your character is. So that's, there you go. There's a story for you. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's and, and I think that's a great thing. And people become so dedicated to these games. They do spend a lot of time so memorising these rules, and like I said, I've come across the same sort of thing. The thing I wanted to do with Those Dark Places is the fact that you wouldn't have to do that. Those Dark Places works well as a one-shot, and I did one with Garblad Games when it was coming out last year. And then within three hours, they knew nothing about the game, and with three hours, we'd created characters in 15 minutes, I'd explain the rules in five minutes, and then we were running the game for another two and a half hours. And that was it, and they knew exactly what was going on. And that's the kind of game that I go
0: for now. Fast, simple, and effective. Excellent. And I do want to get to where we actually have you explain those rules in five minutes, because I'm (laughs) guessing we're going to have time to do so. Real quick, before we move past the setting, uh, something I wanted to ask you about. You described the setting not just as science fiction, but as specifically industrial science fiction. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that industrial is what i kind i don't know if i coined the
1: term to be honest with you, i don't think i did i think i must have heard it somewhere and just regurgitated it because it sounded cool um industrial science fiction is basically if you look at the science fiction movies that were being made in the 70s and 80s so you're looking at things like dark star silent running alien of course outland if you've not seen outland with sean connery peter hymer's film absolutely but if you liked Alien you're going to love Outland even films like 2010 and 2001 and what have you those kind of films were very very hands on and incredibly grimy and felt really really lived in and something that uh, they were saying in the making of Alien was something I always hung on to was that it was very blue collar so these weren't specialists or scientists or space explorers these were space truckers these were people that you could relate to in some way they were just out there just trying to do their job and just trying to work and just trying to get by in life and in space and that's what I kind of latched on to that kind of dirty, grimy backwater. These are the stories of people that you wouldn't give a second glance. These are the stories of people that drive past you on the highway in articulated lorries. You know what I mean? All, he's just overtaking me. Who cares? You don't know his story. Let's find out more about him. And all the weird things that happen. And the great thing about space is like, anything can happen. That's what makes it so scary. So yeah, that's what I was going for. And it's also implied in the setting as far as the corporations are concerned. Corporations basically just want to make money as fast as they possibly can. They want things built by the lowest bidder so they can save money. And that's another edge of those dark places. That's what makes it scary. Because you're flying around in a tin can thousands of miles from home the nearest help is probably about six months away and you're in a, a starship that's been built by the lowest bidder which has been flying around for 20 years anything could go wrong and it's missed its last inspection check because the company wanted to save money and that's in itself it's what if a seal goes what if an airlock depressurizes what if the scrubbers give out or you know what if the faster than light conks up you know there's all these things that can go wrong and that's why it was coined as industrial science fiction these are working men and women out there in space basically just trying to get by and that they're scared enough as it is trying to complete their contracts so when things do go wrong and aliens and stuff is implied but it's never actually definitively sort of discussed i much prefer the unknown terror so things that you think are going on uh but they're, they're really really not and it's all going on in your head Or it's going on in your friends' heads. Or uh, that kind of psychological horror is what I enjoy the most. So yeah, that's what I was trying to emulate with industrial science fiction.
0: Excellent. Okay, so moving on, I guess, let's start with what does a gamer need to play Those Dark Places? Just the one book, right?
1: Uh, Yeah, a D6 and a scrap of paper. And that's it. That's all they need. They don't need anything else. I mean, you can have copies of the character sheets because they look quite nice. And a D6, Well, any way of generating a number, a random number between one and six. That's all you need because that's all the actual system needs is a single D6. It would be nice if they sat down and sort of watched or played a couple of games like Alien or Alien Isolation. Alien Isolation, by the way, is my preferred sequel to Alien. Again, that's a different conversation.
0: I'm not familiar with that.
1: Uh, Alien Isolation, oh, I absolutely love it to bits. It's, it's the computer game that I've been waiting for for Aliens, the sequel that I've been waiting for for a long, long time. Again, like I said, that's a completely different, uh, different conversation. But yeah, if they're familiar with that sort of stuff, then that's all they're going to need to bring to those dark places and as also leave your expectations at the door because this science fiction setting is not flashy you haven't got quantum computers and holographic readouts and high-tech stuff to help you you basically got to get by with a spanner and a pistol and that's probably all you're going to get because like i say the companies want to save money and the best way to save money is not to give you the equipment that you need but yeah if you've got an idea if you've got an affinity if you enjoy those science fiction films of the 70s and 80s then yeah you can bring that to the table as well you don't need it but yeah you can bring that to the table as well
0: excellent and so the the book piece of paper and preferably a uh... Six sided die, but uh yep. and, and just one, just one six
1: sided, just one, one six sided die. The rule system is so simple that that is literally all you need. But uh but yeah, that's all, that's, that's all you need, and that's why it works as well. It works really well for online gaming because we've won a few games of this online, and the games have been really fast and really snappy because there's no messing about. You literally roll the dice, you got your result, and then you carry on. So there's nobody hanging around. I, I tell you, what, it's a bit easy cause it's a bit more social. But on- online, if you're hanging around for your turn, then it can get a little bit. I, well, you don't get bored, you know. But You know what I mean? For me personally, anyway, it can get a little bit annoying if you're hanging around waiting for your turn because I'm just impatient, I guess. I'm a uh, forever GM, so I'm always playing. I'm just not used to it. So, yeah, so it's perfect for online gaming. But, yeah, that's all all you need.
0: Uh, One six-sided die uh, or (laughs) some sort of dice-rolling app, or if you're really eclectic, I guess you'd go chit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real quick, you said you're a forever DM. Is that by choice or is that by consequence? Yeah, it's by choice. I used to get as
1: frustrated as as all hell sometimes playing games. (laughs) I started out as a a player, and then I I used to run a few games. But then in 1987, I kind of just carried on running games. And then I would play in other people's games, and I would catch myself thinking, I wouldn't have done that I would have, I, I, I would have tried this I would have done that and that's I, I wouldn't voice it I, I did voice it once but that was just really really rude it, here's a hint for everybody if you're a GM even somebody else's game, don't tell the GM what you would have done that's just rude don't ever do it it destroys friendships I know so I, and then I just I, I just didn't have the patience to sit there and let other people <laughs> to sit there and let other people sort of help let the game unfold God, that's, which is which is rude in itself I think I've just put all my attention onto GM. When I did play, I didn't really take that much time with the characters. I do have my favourite characters back when I was playing a lot, but my last favourite character was better part of 30 years ago. I focus on GM because I'm very,
0: very selfish as far as game time's concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because I've met a couple of people now that are, you know, like that. They just prefer to be the GM every time. Yeah. But I think most people, when they say "forever GM," it means that they're stuck being the GM because yeah. nobody wants to take up the helm, so to speak. Oh uh, yeah. Oh no, no. it's p- purely about choice for me. Yeah. <laughs> so a player sits down to play those dark places or to, or to yeah. look into it because they're going to run it for their group or whatever. They crack open the book. Mm-hmm. What sorts of things are they going to find familiar?
1: They are going to find... Well, the system itself is dead simple, so they're going to find a a six-sided dice familiar for sure. The setup, they're going to find familiar. You open the book, you've got your introduction, and then you've got the character creation, and then you talk about combat a little bit, and then we talk about the, the setting. So the actual layout of the book is, is, is very, very familiar. It's what you expect from any normal role-playing book. If you know the genre, you're going to recognize a lot of things, especially the illustrations. I mean, the illustrations by uh, Nathan Anderson are absolutely fantastic. I asked for that kind of 1980s, low-tech vibe, and that's exactly what he gave, and yeah, he did a fantastic job. So shout-out to Nathan there. Yeah, it is some great art. I really yeah, do like the art in your book. Is, well, so, I was really pleased. Well, when, when they were offering the artists, and they said, well, these are these guys, and I was going to their portfolios, the very first image of Nathan Anderson's that came up was Kane in the egg chamber in Alien. Um, And I went, yeah, that's him. (laughs) (laughs) That's the guy who's going to be illustrating my book. Yes, thank you very much. Everybody else can go home now. But so, I mean, don't get me wrong, they sent me some fantastic artists. But unfortunately, the alien illustration completely completely threw me made up my mind straight away but yeah uh, once they go into there yeah they're going to f- if they know the genre they're going to find a lot of if they, if they know the era as well of uh, the 1980s especially some of the images of some of the computers in there are very very 1980s desktop computers which is something I asked for I even got our picture and said this is what I'm looking for and it's just brilliant so yeah at my age then yeah they'll definitely recognise the 1980s in there but I think they'll recognise the straightforward setting if it is very very straightforward and they'll also recognise as well the kind of evil corporation side of things although I'm not really on board with the evil corporation is evil angle of things. i prefer the corporation's out there doing its thing, but there are people that work in the corporation who are a little bit nasty, or they, or they want what they want. So I prefer looking at it that way. But yeah, they'll definitely recognise the, a layout of a standard
0: role-playing book. Okay, as far as that's concerned, the layout of the standard role-playing book, so we're looking at things like attributes. Yeah, yeah, definitely recognise the attributes. Basically, there's four attributes, which
1: are charisma, agility, strength, and education, which spells the word case, and that makes up your case file, which I thought was quite clever. And uh, But then I would, because I wrote it, so I'm going to find it's clever. So <laughs> no, no, that, that is clever. I saw
0: that and I chuckled. I like that yeah. a lot. Yeah, so. I thought it was,
1: I, I was really pleased with it. I was. Just, I, I wasn't going to use it. I thought that. I thought I was just being stupid. I thought, come on, John, don't be daft. People are going to just look at that and think you're being daft. And then I, when I wrote up a case file, I thought actually that kind of works. Okay, I'll leave it in for now and see what the editor thinks. See what the publisher thinks. And I loved it. I went, all right, then we'll go with that then. So, but yeah, you got the four attributes. They're given scores of each, and and that. Well, that's it because that's basically all you do in character creation. You, you get you get given the numbers one two three and four you put those against charisma agility strength or education the higher the better and then you choose a primary and a secondary crew position could be pilot or security or liaison or engineer or how medical what have you and then you choose a name and that's it that's your character and then you're ready to go literally a character you can create a character in a minute like i said the game that i ran last year over five people they took 15 minutes to create the character well Probably not even that, probably about 10 minutes to create the characters. And that included the time it took for them to decide who was doing what role on the ship. And then that was it. They were done then and ready to go. So that's all you get, really. There's no skill list. There's not even an equipment list. There's no time for any of that. Basically, you've got your attributes and you've got your crew position, what you're good at, and then that's it. And then the way the rules work is, let's say you've got like um, an agility of three. And if you want to do something that's agile, you do something physical, what have you, you roll a D6, you add your agility score to that dice roll, and then your target number is seven. And if you beat seven, then that's it, you've succeeded. If you go below seven, then you've failed. But if you roll dead on seven, you've succeeded, but there's a bit of a caveat. So, yes, you may have sealed the door, but it might unseal later. Or, yes, you've convinced that guard to let you through. But then in about 10 minutes, he might be thinking, hang on a minute, that's not quite right. I'm going to investigate be this further. And the good thing about that is the player knows that they've only just passed or something might happen. But it's completely up to the GM whether they act on, on that or not. A lot of the time, I don't, because it just it's enough to have the player's tense thinking, what's going to happen to me later? Because this has gone wrong. And that's more than enough to get tension up. Nothing actually happens happens but they're worried anyway and that's absolutely fine because that's what the game calls for and that's it and then if you've got a primary position say pilot you add plus two to the role and your secondary position because everybody's always a backup for somebody else you add a plus one to your role and that is literally it that is literally the rule system and i've literally just told you the rule
0: system so that's it It took me two minutes (laughs) it's so simple I do have to say the rolling sevens as the partial success. Yeah. I, I mean, you see that in other games, but I like that that's the narrowest margin because in other games, certain systems, it's broader. And yeah. I, I hate having that happen too much because especially when you're running the game, that almost becomes cumbersome. So having that be only, you know, one out of what what's the most you could roll 10 with the, yeah. the plus four, I guess, 12 yeah, the yeah, plus, yeah, four plus yeah, that's two. Wrong. Yeah, but having that just be one possible chance in the middle there, I like that quite yeah. a bit. That was and it, it, it is it is rolled. Thank you. It is rolled
1: quite a lot in the game, and that's why I I think I said don't worry about it. You know what I mean? You don't have to act on this because I, I ran a game not long ago, and they must have rolled dead on the target time a dozen times easy. I haven't got time to to throw a dozen different reasons why that didn't quite work at people, but it was enough to keep the players nervous because they didn't know what was going to happen or which failure I was going to act on. As it turned out, I didn't act on any of the failures. Mainly because the game was going so fast i completely forgot about them but the tension was there in the air anyway and they do turn up quite a lot i could have easily have just said yeah if you roll target number or more it's a success anything lower like than that is a failure but well it's a game of tension it's a game of psychological tension so of course i had to include a rule in there that would reflect that and that's why i also came up with the pressure bonus for the pressure system so when you roll your die you've got to hit a target number and if you fail then you get things called pressure points and the more pressure points you get the more chance you have of having an episode and this episode could be anything from uncontrollable shaking to catatonia to literally going nuts and just fighting anything that's in your way to get away from whatever it is that's terrified you and these pressure rolls are actually called for quite a lot during a game and that can put a lot of stress on players when they've realized that they've made three rolls or they've got up to four pressure points they've still not yet had an episode and the more pressure points you get the chances are the bigger your episode's going to be and that adds a lot of pressure to the table as well it uh, makes for very interesting games
0: okay and it hadn't occurred to me that seven would be a rather common result. And sometimes the target number is not 7, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, the target number if it's an easier task and it's 6, if it's harder then it's 8 or maybe a little bit higher depending on exactly what's going on. Or if it's an opposed roll as well, you just basically roll a d6 at your attributes and every roll's highest wins. And you re-roll ties. Basically the the only just succeed is the target number. So yeah, if I say the target number 6 and then you roll the die and then you roll dead on 6, then you've only just succeeded. That chance of only just succeeding is always there.
0: And do you, I'm sorry, did you say that in opposed roles, that rule doesn't come into play?
1: No, it doesn't uh, because basically with opposed roles, it's usually just two characters against each other, PC or NPC. So you basically just rolling a die, adding your stats, and then whoever rolls highest wins. That only works with the physical and mental skills, charisma skills, where you can influence another character. But that doesn't work between PCs because it would be, well, I, 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 that, that shouldn't really work in any role playing game. You don't want another player making a role to convince your character Character to go off and do something that they they don't want to do so they should role play that out hence the term role play Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah no polls rose that doesn't really happen and then added a few optional rules because i realized that one of my playtest groups wanted to be a little bit more heroic and go a little bit more down the aliens route so i thought i'd give that a bit of a shot didn't quite work out didn't suit the nature of my game and i said okay if you roll a six it's an automatic success and if you roll a one it's an automatic failure And so i'll put that as an optional rule if you wanted to do to be a bit more sort of adventurous and what have you so but i I don't use that rule because i prefer the tension oh so you do have a, a An
0: optional sort of crit
1: yeah kind of yeah there's no critical role per se but yeah there is an optional rule where sixes are always a success yeah and one is always always a failure just to, for those people who just want something a little bit different if they wanted to go on and look, make it a little bit more adventurous I suppose then yeah they've got the option to use that rule. excellent
0: okay so another rule I wanted to talk to you about was your pressure points would you be able to Explain mm-hmm. for us a little bit more about the pressure point system in your game and how it plays out in practice.
1: Yeah. What happens is every time you see something nasty, so like a body falls out of a, of a cupboard or a monster jumps out and, you know, basically any kind of jump scare that your character was not expecting and would not react well to, then you roll something called a pressure bonus. And your pressure bonus is your strength and education added together. Uh, you roll a d6, you add your pressure bonus, and then you've got to roll 10 or more. There's no just made it target number that you've just got to roll 10 or more and if you roll 10 or more then you've yeah, you're shocked and you're like oh my god what, what just happened but then you very quickly sort of gather your senses you realize you're in a situation and then you sort of get back on track but if you roll less than 10 then you get something called a pressure point and what these pressure points do they build up over time and when you get more than one pressure points every time you get a new pressure point you roll 1d6 and if you roll less than but not equal to your pressure level then you'll have an episode. So, and this uh, it was a game I was running uh, during playtest, I had to change the pressure rules, actually, because everybody was just passing out all over the place. <laughs> it, was bit, it was awful. This guy was trying to drag one unconscious guy out of a room whilst his monster was trying to kill him. And then just at the very moment, the other guy was trying to open the door, and the body fell out, mangled body. He completely flushed his pressure roll and then passed out as well. So, got one guy there with a the taser, with him fighting against a big monster with two unconscious guys on the floor. And I thought, no, I've, I've got to change these rules. Everyone's just going to die in the first 10 minutes. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. So, yeah, and that builds up over time. And if you roll less than your pressure level then yes you'll have an episode and like i said earlier depending on how high your pressure level is you could roll as low as one which means you're just a little bit shocked and you might have adjustments to your agility or your charisma you know you might have uncontrollable shaking so your liaison and charisma roles might not go too well or you might have a bit of kind of a, a brain fog so your education roles might not work or your physical shaking, your agility roles might not work so well. So yeah, it affects you in that way up to uh, basically passing out going catatonic or trying to run away from whatever's scaring you. I've had that happen once in a game and it was quite unfortunate something happened, I can't quite remember I know it was a buckling airlock and it came over and there was all bodies inside this airlock and the airlock burst open and the bodies came out he panicked, failed his roll rolled his sticks, rolled a six and the result is you got to you are fighting anybody who's in your way to get away from what's just happened and he had a like a work wrench in his hands and he turned around to run away and one of the other characters said no I'll stop him because we need him this guy's the security officer he's got a gun so he stepped in front of him to grab hold of him so he said okay well I've got no choice but to hit him because that's what's happening in panic roll and sadly he smacked him in the head and killed him and then ran off and we're like okay that didn't go too well but oh well you know we just need to deal so yeah it can get really really bad depending on on how high your pressure roll goes you're basically like a pressure cooker the more points you get the worse it's going to be if you do have a meltdown so it's good to have a meltdown or have a problem or fail a pressure roll whilst you're still in the low pressure level area if you get up to pressure level five or six it's going to cause serious problems for you and your team So and as that builds up over the time And again I come back to the word tension The tension builds as well because you don't know what's going to happen next
0: Okay, excellent And so I also wanted to talk about losing ability points Mm -hmm. Which is how we represent damage as well as some effects, right?
1: Yeah, that's right When you take damage, you take it off your strength Once it gets to zero, you pass out And then if you get to minus two Then you're in danger of dying in your strength scoring rounds Unless somebody gives you medical attention So there's always a chance I always like to give people a chance I don't like getting to zero and saying Right, you're dead, off you go now Go and sit over there, create a new character That's a bit unfair you can make death or the threat of death just as terrifying as anything else so yeah your strength goes down you lose um, ability points depending on injury or depending on your pressure level roles as well whether they're failed or not but that's pretty much it that's the only time the, the only real stat attribute that gets really effective throughout a game depending on how much action combat or violence there is is going to be the strength stat
0: okay and you said that sometimes the results of pressure rolls might affect your agility scores
1: that's right yeah i mean it, you might start a fit on uncontrollable shaking and that's it then that your agility is a little bit messed up so you want to sit down and repair something or use a computer but your hands are shaking too much and so that can work against you as well yeah if you fail a pressure roll and you go below your pressure level it creates a problem for the rest of the group as well because if you're trying to do something that's specific to your role and that's why one of the reasons why you should do secondary roles as well secondary crew positions so that somebody could step in and help you if they had to as long as they have a similar position because i found that as soon as one character and his role in the group is compromised it creates more problems and that's no fun for anybody really you don't want to go into a situation whereas you know everybody's relying on the spellcaster you go into the dungeon and in the first 10 minutes spellcaster's dead and you're like okay well that's just done for the adventure then let's just get out of here i didn't want that happening so that's why i introduced the secondary crew positions so yeah it can affect your stats in, in different ways whether as far as physical movement or just communicating to people just talking to people it can affect you as well
0: Excellent. So, if we could then go a little bit into combat, I know we touched on it a little already, but you lay out a yeah. couple of different scenarios in the book, and you mentioned something interesting about not wanting to have firearms on a spaceship, which I don't think comes up enough.
1: <laughs> yeah, one of the things, I'm coming back to the film Outland, and there's two things, actually, I got, the two things I got this from. One was the film Outland, and they're walking around a space station where they can obviously puncture the hull of this mining station, like the CONAM-21 mining station, and it's obviously they can punch holes in the tubes, the walk tubes, and what have you, and you've got this guy walking around with a shotgun, it's a pump-action street sweeper, and you're thinking, what are you doing? Why are you? Why have you got a shotgun in, what are you doing? you got a shotgun, you're going to shoot the guy, and if you miss, you're going to blow a hole in the wall and everyone's dead. Why are you doing this? And you've already shown this in the first 10 minutes of the film, that decompression is really bad. It's, it's scientifically inaccurate, but it's it's really, really bad. And then I was watching Armageddon, the Bruce Willis film, they're trying to stop the asteroid. And then the officer on the spaceship pulls a pistol out on Bruce Willis, and then one of the characters goes, what are you doing with a gun in space? You know what <laughs> what I mean? like, and he's absolutely right. Why would you do that? So and that, so that's what I said. I, I wanted to keep guns down to a minimum, because I felt I've had a and this is my problem with the early design of those dark planets. If you've got a long list of guns, then it just turns into a shopping trolley. It just turns into a shopping list. Oh, I want this gun. This one's cool. This one will do. So I just gave you three options. You've got a taser, which is what everybody would carry in space because why would you shoot a gun? And then when you've got major problems, then you've got a pistol and then you've got a shotgun because shotguns are cool and shotgun is outland. And that's what I was emulating. But you don't use those if you can possibly help it. If you're on a station, you're on a settlement, if you're on earth, then yeah, you knock yourself out, you go for it. But in general, everybody's equipped with a taser. All the guns are locked away in the cupboard. You don't anybody just wandering in there and messing about you're in transit you're thousands and millions of billions of miles from home and then suddenly you're cleaning a your pistol it goes off blows a hole in the porthole he's like that's all that money gone to waste just because you were cleaning the gun you don't want guns in space so i was trying to and also as well it's not a comfort blanket so the characters won't say oh my god this is happening i'm going to run back to the ship i'm going to get the bfg 3000 i'll be back in five minutes so that kind of takes the tension out of it if they've got a way to defend themselves straight away so i just kept it light and simple in combat yes combat is really deadly it really really is and no, you don't want to get shot. And you certainly don't want to miss who you're shooting at, especially if you're on a spaceship. So yeah, I made combat intentionally brief and deadly. So that's not what the focus of the game is on. The focus of the game is exploration, investigation, and then going crazy.
0: My question would be, again, I don't think this gets addressed enough in science fiction, would having a combustion in space, would that not potentially incinerate you? Because yeah. you know, if you're in an oxygen environment, oxygen like rich but, atmosphere, yeah, 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 you know, would you, firing a pistol not potentially cause a, a much larger explosion?
1: I'll, I'll, I'm going to be honest with you. I never actually gave that much thought, but now that you just mentioned that, I'm going to write an entire adventure around that and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that, let me know. That, a, a gunfight on a, on, a, on, a, on a oxygen-rich space station no that could cause all sorts of situations there's one rule which i didn't include in the book which i use quite a lot and if i think something bad's going to happen i'll ask the player to roll a d6 and whatever you do don't roll a one and if they roll a one then something bad happens so f- pull off a shot and you miss your target roll a d6 if you roll a one something bad's going to happen that does create a lot of excitement at the table because you know you don't know what you're going to roll so but yeah that's um no i've, I've never thought of that so like un- I'm, I'm gonna write that down right now and credit you yeah
0: okay well i'll make sure that it goes in the recording so that they know it came from me <laughs> if you run that adventure though let me know i'll throw some guys yeah. in. but um the reason i thought of that with your game in particular is because every other person is depicted with a cigarette yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking like you can't smoke in space <laughs> <Please don't>.
1: yeah <laughs> like, again, spend- <laughs> again that's a throwback to um those, those, especially Owl, Alien and Outland, whereas every other scene, there was the haze of smoke. And it's just the way Ridley Scott and the way that Peter Hyam shot the films. I think they used the same director of photography. Yeah, so you got this layer of mist, this really weird layer of smoke. You're thinking, where the hell does that come from? And I always put that down to the fact that everybody smoked on the ship. <laughs> there's nowhere for the smoke to go because the scrubbers don't like it. So there's a whole haze of smoke and nicotine hanging around the ship. But I think, yeah, I think that that was the design choice as far as that. And they made for really cool pictures as well, so let's face it, so that was right.
0: They are cool pictures. I'll yeah. give you that. Like we said, great art. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's just, I, I think about that, you know, you can't, sm- I guess you could just argue that, well, the air generators generate a similar, you know, nitrogen rich you know, yeah. atmosphere like Earth. So whatever.
1: I wonder what that but, would do to, this is something I'm going to read up about, actually. I wonder what that would do to scrubbers, because at the end of the day, you're still breathing recycled air. So I think I even mentioned it in a part of the book, you are drinking recycled water, you're eating recycled food, you're, you're breathing the same air that you've been breathing for the past few years on the same ship. Would you want to smoke on the ship? Would you want that getting into the system? Would you want that getting into the scrubbers? That would leave a horrible smell on the ship, surely. That's a really good idea, actually. I like that. That's nice. I might do something with that. That's pretty cool.
0: Also, what is recycled food? I won't go into that. Okay. But it was an idea that
1: I came up with a game uh, and then decided to sort of um, proceed with it because it just turned into a long string of poop jokes. That was an idea that I had, which I dropped. <laughs> (laughs) Okay. So you do have food, but it's just space food. Space food.
0: MREs (laughs) and whatnot. Okay. (laughs) All right. So yeah, I know you said you keep combat quick and simple. Uh you go into it, there are initiative roles like we'd see in normal games, and that's based on your agility, which is similar to decks. And then you had the, the hand to hand combat rules and the firearms rules there. And like you said, it's you don't have that many hit points so it's if you get hit there's a good chance you're going down
1: absolutely more often than not one shot will take somebody down if you decide that you want to be the intellectual of the group and you've got one point into strength just getting slapped around the face is enough to put you down so yeah it is a a deadly deadly system it makes you think very hard about what points you're putting in where because if you think about it unless you're using the six automatic success rule if you put one point into strength and then only two points into education there's no way you're making your pressure rolls there's no way that even if you roll a six there's no way you roll the best you can do is Nine. So every situation you come up against, you're going to panic. You're going to get a pressure point. That makes you a liability to the group. But if you're fantastic agility and fantastic charisma, you're the liaison officer and you talk to people really well. You can get themselves out of that situations. Yeah, it does make you think about how many points you're putting into your character and where those points are going to go.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. You had said earlier that opposed charisma checks were not an element of this game yeah. and it was just purely role playing. But in that example, it sounds like they're still in play, just with NPCs not, not, not only, between,
1: not between players, but not between we, players. We, okay. Between, a player on an NPC, if you want to try and influence an NPC, I always encourage people to role play and that'll give you a bonus to your role. Or if what you say is really convincing, then yeah, I'll just let it go and say, Okay, the guy's convinced, off you go. But if you role play really, really well, yes, you may be liaison officer, and you'll get a plus two to your dice roll. But if you really role play it really, really well, say something really, really cool, I'm going to give you an extra plus one to that. There should be benefits, there should be rewards for good role playing, and that's what I like to do. But that only works against NPCs. So convincing other people, ordering them around, all that sort of stuff, that only works against NPCs. And like I said earlier, it's It's not fair if another PC turns around and says I'll tell his character to do this. And then you're sat there whilst your character's going off like he has been hypnotized. So, no, there's no charisma or those kind of roles between player characters. But as far as strength and agility is concerned, you know, feats of strength and feats of agility, then yeah, those opposed roles, you can use those between player characters.
0: Excellent. Okay. And then you do outline, other than combat, other sources of damage. Yeah. And how do you handle that? What, What sorts of things might we see there? I keep that
1: very brief and very simple. So it's basically just falls from height. Heat, as in Fire and radiation and vacuum, and you basically just take a point. The further you fall, the more damage you take. And with fire and radiation, you'll just take a point per round. Because, like I say, with only like two or three points in strength, you could start to burn, and then within two, three rounds, you're dead, uh, or at least close to death. And like you said earlier, you know, I mean, the fire is exacerbating in space because of an oxygen-rich atmosphere. And I just treat it as one whole heat sort of source. Because again, I could have gone into a lot of detail about lots of different damage sources and what they do and how it works and how many rounds it takes for this to happen, blah blah blah. But then. i've I realised I was doing that in different sections of the book and I'd realised I was going into more detail in some areas than I was in others. So straight away, i just take that detail out and then I'd generalise it because I didn't want to make the game complicated. So when you think now, oh yes, that's on fire, then you'll take that point of damage per round and then you'll use that same rule saying, oh no, the baffles are open, and I'm staring straight into a nuclear reactor, then you'll take that points per round or, oh no, he's left the oven on and there's a fire in the kitchen and the oils just explode in the frying pan and then you'll take those points per round. It, I just kept it extremely simple no matter the situation. Because then it just helps to keep the game flowing. You're not thinking about how it affects the mechanics or the dice rolls or the bonuses or the, the charts and tables. You're just saying, okay, this is the judgment. That's happened. You've taken a point, move on. And then you can just keep the game flowing that way.
0: Excellent. Okay. And so my character is hurt. What do we do? How hard is it to get strength points or any lost ability points back? How do we handle that?
1: Basically, every ship is fitted with an auto dock. So if your medical officer can help you, they have to make a standard medical roll. This is if you've gone below minus two. And they make a standard medical roll. Well, and that stabilizes you which means you're alive as long as they survive to get you out of the situation that you're in and then they'll get you to the auto dock and then you'll recover in the auto dock over a period of time you can also recover your pressure points as well because you don't want to get five pressure points in one game and then spend the next few games with five pressure points because that's just that's your character over at some point it'll just be useless to everybody so you can actually recover pressure points as well and that's done by basically just relaxing in between games spending time in a long sleep pod which is like the hyper sleep capsules which you sleep in between jobs and that's because the mixture of a cocktail of drugs and what have you know, that goes through your system slows your metabolism down and completely relaxes your body and that helps to relieve the pressure. You can never ever though go below one pressure point. And I also added this other rule as well where uh, if you do have an episode in a certain situation you need to write down what that situation was that you had the episode in. So if you had an episode and you were underwater you have a fear of water if you had an episode in a dark corridor then dark corridors are going to be a little. If you had an episode in a spacesuit doing an EVA then yeah you're not going to want to go out on an EVA again. And if you do do that then you're going to have negative modifiers to your roles because you're going to be there terrified thinking what's going to happen now is going to happen again but the way i've also handled that i didn't want to be too negative about that so i also handled that if you do face those fears and if you do manage to overcome those situations then you sort of get back on the horse Sort of burke style and so you face the demons you face them down and that gives you the strength to push on and then those negative modifiers start to reduce them until they've com- gone up completely because you've managed to conquer your fears so yeah you can mechanically you can bring your pressure points down role playing wise yeah it can still affect you uh, games later
0: and so i'm dealing with these negative modifiers how do those manifest mechanically are those they literally Is the just take taking... or... yeah
1: yeah you know you, well you can either up the target or you can just uh, take the bonuses off the dice roll. You might have a I don't know medical officer plus two got out in an EVA you don't want to be out there and then so all your rolls are, are minus two. You've lost that bonus. You're just making your, your standard rolls. But if you make that roll and then you actually succeed at that roll, not just succeed but succeed, then that negative modifier starts to go down. And yeah, that helps your character recover from the horrors of the And it also makes I found during a playtest it made certain characters face certain situations that they knew that their cats were terrified of because they wanted those modifiers gone. This one guy just simply became afraid of the dark and you know there isn't a worse place possible to be afraid of the dark than in deep space so he, he needed to overcome that and he was determined to do it so every time a situation came up where he had to face that fear he would literally throw his character into it and in the end he managed to get past it and get over it and what have you so yeah it forces some really good role playing out of people i don't, I don't want to force role playing I, I want to help sort of i want to help their role playing along but sometimes it really does force people into certain situations which they face as a character and then their role playing improves off the back of that and I really appreciate that in a game.
0: You gave the example of taking their plus two for their career.
1: Yeah, or you just up the target number by one or two, depending on how severe the pressure roll was. I'll leave that in the hands of the games master because a lot of the time you need to react to what's happening at the table. You need to react to how the players are reacting and the situation at the table. So if you're in a dire situation, you don't want to make it too difficult for them. You don't want this guy to fail his role because it might end up with a TPK. Or the player themselves might be a little bit uncomfortable with the situation that they've actually found themselves in. So it, it sort of puts a little bit of power in the hands of the game Gamesmaster, master, or the game monitor, a general monitor in this game, as they're called, to sort of read the table and then decide how they want to proceed with modifiers
0: okay now those modifiers though from the primary and the secondary roles would those only come into play if it's something that applies to that occupation is that that, yeah that's correct yeah that's right i'll leave it
1: quite abstract and they're very very general and the reason why i chose seven professions is because there were seven crew members of the and alien that was the definitive design choice which i stuck to i didn't have a a career for the cat unfortunately which was a bit annoying but yeah so each one of those careers basically if you're going to do something first of all you decide which attribute suits that the most so if you're talking to somebody use charisma if you're trying to remember something use education if you're trying to do something physical, sort of lift up a, a, an iron bar or force open a door, that's strength. If you're trying to do something dexterous, like repair something, then that's dexterity. And then you choose, depending on what the action is, what is actually happening, will then depend on what crew member option you use. So if it is an engineer, if you're trying to fix something, fix something nice and simple, and it's like using a small dexterous screwdriver, you could use either your education, because you know about how this works, or your agility. That's completely up to you as the GM or as the player. And then, because you're an engineer and you know this kind of technical stuff, then you'll add your bonus, as as to whether you're a primary or secondary position so it's quite abstract it's the same with combat as well it's very abstract you make those decisions at the table as it works at the end of the day i had to make a ruling to say that at the end of the day yes as a player you can argue well maybe i can use this or maybe i can use that you could even get bonuses from the tools that you're using as well but at the end of the day the gm's decisions final and it doesn't need to really be anything sort of set in concrete so you know a couple of games later you could choose something completely different depending on the situation, even though there are similar things happening, and you, you might choose a different stat and then use that, but that's completely by the by. That's like I say, the GM's decision is fine at the end of that at the end of the day.
0: Okay, excellent. You'd mentioned in that explanation using tools to gain an advantage on a check. In yep. the game like weapons, you left the equipment list rather brief, right?
1: it's extremely brief and basically whatever you need that's sensible then you uh, the company will provide one of the items that you're given as part of equipment is an id chip and you're on a 25 year contract and you're paid by the company so if you need something from somewhere you flash your id chip uh, if you're not sure it's there you want a d6 and you know if you want an odd number then it's there if you if you want an even number it's not you can handle that however you want but within reason the company will pay for it so that way then you don't have to worry about whether your ship's fueled whether you're eating properly whether you've got reloads for your guns or anything like that every basic thing that you need is available so you can't say okay i want to go to the space station i'm going to buy a fast car i'm going to buy that starship i'm going to buy that suit of armor which deflects all damage below five you know what i mean that would just be ridiculous so all your basic needs are met by the company and unfortunately out there in space there aren't any shops to go shopping you can't go sort of shopping in between adventures and spending all the credits that you've earned that's not the way it works so yeah i kept it very very basic so a 25 year contract well you get to sleep for most of it so that includes time that you're asleep so you could go on an 18 month mission you could fly out there for eight months Spend a couple of months there doing the mission and then sort of fly back again. And all the time you spend in long sleep is counted towards your contract, counted towards your 25 years. And then at the end of that 25 years, you're given a nice fat bonus and then that's it, you retire. So the aim of the game, because the game system is so simple, it doesn't really allow for any kind of character progression or any kind of expansion on skills and that sort of thing. So the aim of the game basically is to make it to the end of your 25 year contract and not go mad or die.
0: Okay, so you're living on this ship for 25 years, largely in stasis, and in your game, the ships are almost just environments in this. That's so you don't. Okay, could you yeah. speak a little bit yeah. to that?
1: Yeah, um, that was a conscious decision. I did come up with a starship rules as far as stats and everything's concerned. And in fact, they were an entire chapter in the book on their own. But then I realised they were completely pointless. All we needed was deck plans because the ships themselves, And like you, you put it really well actually, the ships themselves were environments. I found out that I was writing all these stats and I was I was in a bit of a Star Wars vein. So I was thinking about what, what would happen if a ship came across another one and they ended up having to fight. Two corporate ships come up against each other and they have to shoot missiles at each other and uh, what sort of hull do they have and how fast are they and blah blah blah. And then I realised that's not what the game's About, and that's not what I wanted to do. So, I I just completely took the entire section out. It was a better part of 5,000 words. I just took the whole thing out and just dumped it. And so, ships now, they are just a means to an end. They get you from A, they get you to B. I even say it in the book you press a button, the button says go, the ship goes, that's it. They're just environments. And that's how I would imagine them to be. I mean, if you look at the starships and Alien and Aliens, they're just big hunks of metal. I'm sure the weapons on the Solarco, I want to see what they do for sure. But especially where the Nostromo is concerned, it's just a big hunk of metal. You can't blast it through an asteroid if it's not the Millennium Falcon. And, you know, it's not a fighter, it's like giving stats to a tanker, you know, a, a, a normal seagoing tanker, they're just big, and uh, and, and you know what I mean? That's it, that, that's it. You can't, you can't definitely steer it down a channel. God knows they tried down the sewers canal, but you can't sort of dodge it out the way of incoming <laughs> fire or anything like that. So, what's the point? There's no point in including those stats. That's again, I'll come back to my th- to my um original idea. That's not what the game's about, so yeah, I left the starship stuff out. I might release them in a later supplement just as a bit of fun or to give people that option. At least, I like to give people options in games, but with the initial book, no, I I took Starships out completely. I took Aliens out completely as well. I was going to include ideas for Aliens and sort of exotic creatures and all sorts of cybernetically enhanced monsters and this sort of stuff. But then I came back to my point earlier where I was thinking, this doesn't work for me because I'm building a bestiary. I don't want a bestiary. I don't want the players or anybody to know what to expect. So I took all that out as well. Although I have written that up as something called the GM Simulation Expansion as a free PDF, a free 10-page PDF, and Osprey Games will be releasing that. So uh, by the time this goes out, it's probably already been released that's about 10 pages long and it'll give some ideas on how to use aliens and different creatures and stuff in your games with a few adventure hooks but my players didn't respond well to that they quite like the sort of industrial thriller side of things so I actually explicitly say yes you can introduce these but if it doesn't work out and the players don't like it then just say it was an actual simulation to see how you would handle aliens and then move on with your normal game but yeah it's, it's an option again it's an option
0: that people can use if they want to use it I think I'm going to run space tanker, or get stuck in the space canal <laughs> I think that's a great idea two asteroids it's like oh what what are we going to do get
1: some diggers you know what i mean it's just it's um that was insane it was unfortunate i've got to feel sorry for everybody involved and but that was just insane mm. but yeah that tanker in fact that entire situation would make a fantastic those dark places adventure could you imagine if you were the captain of that ship that would be the thing that would be the most terrified of you're terrified of capsizing or running aground and he pretty much did both so you know what i mean it's like <laughs> oh my god how bad a day did he have so no that's uh, that's that's really bad so no that makes for a fantastic and, that, and that's how i imagine the ships they're just big hunks that you can't do anything with them they just fly through space they go from point a to point b that's it that's all they do that's what they're
0: there for if we have time later i got a good navy story for you from a buddy of mine (laughs) you do mention just some different ship types but you don't go into details on stats or or deck plans well i think i
1: mentioned the ship types because i want to give again they had different crew types so i wanted to give the players options as to what kind of Ships they could serve on, so they have an idea of what kind of crew that they wanted. So yeah, I give the different ship types, and, and it, a lot of it's flavour as well. So you know that there's different kind of vessels out there. You'll find that a lot of the rulebook is flavour. That a lot of it is out there because it's this corporate guy talking to you about space exploration and what to expect. A lot of it is flavour, and he's talking about the setting. So I don't go into major details. I think there's a couple of pages where I talk about the you know the solar system, what it's like on Earth, and the reason why these ships are all out there. But yeah, I don't go into any major because that gives players the ability then to create what they want, and they can create any kind of history that they want as well and any kind of corporation that they want everybody seems to come back to cambridge wallace which is the company that i talk about quite a lot in the book which is great which is fine because i've got a lot of plans for cambridge wallace but yeah i keep a lot of it vague just so that people can inject their own unique ideas into it
0: yeah it almost serves as adventure hooks then you look at these different ship types you know you say it's like alien well that kind of narrows what directions they'll go how far they'll deviate from that but you give like okay so here's seven different ship types it's like Oh. oh well i wonder what you know this ship would be doing, that yeah. ship would be doing, yeah. Cause, because not only do I talk about the ships, I talk about what they're there for and what they do.
1: So, yeah, maybe you want to go out as a resource collector and, and mine asteroids, or maybe you want to be a survey ship and go and look at this planet here, which is probably won't be able to settle, but at least you can go and have a look and spend a year exploring the service of another world. So, yeah, they're like little adventure hooks based on the starship type. So, again, I'll come back to the word. It gives players options as to what they want to do.
0: Absolutely, and I think you can generate a lot of great ideas from that. Yeah. I did notice you do have a brief creature section here in the back. To give people some ideas, if they do want to have an alien adventure, this would serve kind of as adventure hooks as well and you said that there'd be more creatures in an upcoming supplement which i will try to make sure we have linked in the show notes if it's out when the show airs yeah yeah
1: yeah, that's going to cover things like smaller creatures and then things like alien and like stalkers and then more intelligent creatures and then all the way up to cosmic entities that i think were ants and how do you deal with those sort of things at that point i didn't quite know what to write because let's face it if they see you then you're just going to die so (laughs) so how how do you handle that so I, i i didn't know how to write that so i was like well what What's the point? What what you know what I mean? What what is the point of these kind of games? So I kind of reflected that in the way that the the uh, narrator's actually talking to you about it. It's like, what's the point? What's the point? If you see it you're gonna die, so what's the point? So um you know what I mean? But yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to write. But yeah, that'll be out soon. And it's completely free. I've got to stress that actually. If you've already got the main rule book, this supplement is completely free and it'll add loads and loads of playtime to your game.
0: Sounds great. Yeah, and our listeners will definitely be checking that out. Was there anything else mechanically you think we should go over in the game?
1: No, no, to be honest with you, the mechanics are so simple. We I think we pretty much read out the rule book, to be honest with you. So no, 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 we're all good there.
0: Perfect. Okay. Can you describe a little bit about the playtesting and any good stories there quick? I did quite
1: a lot of it, but a lot of it was just for the fun aspects because the rules are so simple, I didn't expect much. You know what I mean? So I didn't have to worry about results or unforeseen circumstances because other than the pressure rules, which are a little bit more complicated than the actual main rules... And that took a little bit of time just to balance out. And even now, I still think that maybe they're not absolutely spot on, 100% perfect because that's just the nature of games. You can't predict everything. But yeah, no, playtesting was really, really easy. In fact, a lot of the book design, what I decided to include in the book was decided through the playtesting. But yeah, playtesting was really, really easy. Literally had two groups. One group I would game with, the other group took the game away and did their own games, then came back to me with their interpretation. And then what I was doing, I was doing a few one-on-ones with random people. And I would run different kinds of games with them just to get a little bit of feedback. But to be honest with you, the playtesting wasn't very long and it was very, very easy because it's a what-was-like game. Excellent. And so,
0: what sort of challenges did you run into or any failed experiments? You did mention the pressure roll already. Yeah, the pressure roll had
1: to change, like I was talking about earlier, because people were just dying like flies. I mean, it was funny, uh, but not entertaining. So, yeah, that had to change. The only other failed experiment was the playtest of the Starship rules because it felt like we were playing two different games. Suddenly, the game would stop and then I had these different mechanics which were a little bit more involved than the main mechanics, actually. So, I had these little mechanics and it was a little bit frustrating because well, I was running the game and the, the Starship mechanics were just, getting in the, they were just getting in the way. So yeah, that was a failed experiment and one, another reason why I, I took them out. But other than that, everything went quite swimmingly. And the only other thing I had to do was pass the book around to people after I'd written it so they could actually read it so I could not get approval but get, get people's opinions on how it was written because it's got this very chatty, like I say, interview sort of feel to it. And I really like that because it was entertaining to write. I want to make my books entertaining. There's nothing worse than a wall of text. That's absolutely fine. Don't get me for me, I should say. That's absolutely fine because if you need to explain and rule book and it's complicated, no, like something like Pathfinder or D&D 5e or Rollmaster, then yeah, you're going to need this wall of text because you're going to need to explain the rules, and that's absolutely fine. But for a simple game like this, I wanted flavor, so that's why I did it. And yeah, it came back mostly positive. There's a couple of things I had to change. I take out a lot of swearing to make it a little bit more sort of approachable because there's some parts of it where the guy talking to you came across really, really aggressive. And then somebody said, When well, I'm reading it, I'm not reading it as if this narrator is talking to me, uh, Jonathan. I'm reading it as if you're talking to me, and nobody <coughs> talks to me like that. That. and i'm like okay i'll take that out <laughs> <like, laughs> i said oh, okay that's fair dues but yeah that was it that was it. the playtesting that it wasn't very long i spent longer writing it than playtesting it
0: i think the sort of second person informal writing was a good idea mm-hmm. as far as i think you're right that does convey a certain tone that i think really does benefit the overall yeah product there so I, again
1: again it's, it's all about atmosphere and if i can immerse the reader into the atmosphere of the world that i'm trying to create then so much the better because I, sometimes i find some text in some role-playing games the idea behind the role-playing game is fantastic. Fantastic, but then sometimes the text leaves me a little bit cold because it just feels like you're reading a manual, you're like you're trying to, I don't know, install a new washing machine or something. I just don't feel the game through the text, and that's really what I wanted to try and do with this game.
0: Excellent. So, any examples of how this led to great role play? I, I really liked the player killing the other player with a wrench. I mean, I, yeah, that's unfortunate, but you know, what I mean, like I, I, I like that <laughs> example. did you have any other examples you want to throw out there? Uh, yeah, similar to the ones actually.
1: The guy um, basically facing his fears, basically the medical guy, and he was basically trying to operate on his friend and save him, and then he failed miserably, and the guy died. He actually, completely his role And the guy died on the operating table. And this is whilst they were trying to keep the door sealed because there was an infection going around the ship and everybody was panicking. Uh yeah, so that guy unfortunately passed away. So he when he failed his pressure and he went catatonic, and then of course when he came out of it, he then had this fear of basically doing his job. So every time there was a situation and a couple of games later, a guy got injured and he went running over with the medical kit. And I said, Right, you difficult is you're gonna have to drop your bonus. Well, why? Well, because you wrote on your character sheet that you're terrified of doing something wrong. And he was like, Oh no, what do I do? I said, Well, you're just gonna have to make your role if you want to do it or you're just going to go no I can't do this I'm sorry completely up to you and we all played it out and he role played it so well I actually did give him a bit of a bonus to his role because he was there sort of his hands shaking and everybody was behind him saying just save him just help him just help him and yeah he made the role and then that sort of helped his character recover from the trauma I know it's not that simple in, in real life I know there's loads of elements and uh, circumstances which doesn't make it that simple but for game purposes it really and for role playing and for melodrama purposes it, uh, it really really worked I'm not trying to emulate reality here I'm not trying to explain Psychological situations And what have you That's not my intention Just for the role playing aspect For the melodrama of it And getting your teeth Into that character Into those situations That's what I'm trying to emulate Excellent,
0: okay And so is there anything In those dark places That you'd say You are most proud of?
1: Oh my lord Anything I say Is going to sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet But the art For a start I'm sorry I know we keep coming back to it But I love the art The cover There's an image inside the book Of the lady in the Long sleep pod with those of broken axes And stuff all around her I wanted that for the cover because I, th- I absolutely loved it that's what I envisioned as the cover I thought it would be quite exciting but then when I saw the cover with the helmet with the reflection in it I said this is the layout for the front cover I was like oh my god yeah please I'll have some of that thank you so I'm really proud of that But both I'm, I'm, great images it's just really good but I'm really proud of the way it's written I'm really proud of the writing and that really is me blowing my own trumpet I am glad I have no regrets taking that course of, of that style of writing just to not only explain the rules but to also like I say express the atmosphere bring the characters and the players into the atmosphere of the setting and tell a bit of a story as well because if you read the rule book there's a little bit of a story being told as he's explaining the rules and the regulations and the life of a spacer all the way up to the Argent 3 report which is the adventure at the back of the book the Argent 3 report wasn't the original adventure I wrote an adventure called Edward which I thought was lovely and original and then I saw the film Saturn 5 and I thought I can't use Edward so <laughs> I had to write a new adventure and it became the Argent 3 report I'm really really pleased with that I'm very
0: very proud of the way it turned out but I think everything worked out the way that like, I wanted it to work out perfect okay do you have any future plans for those dark places? Yeah. Yes,
1: I've already released an adventure called the Anison Amid Report, which I ran for Blood Games last year. I've made some changes, so there's a few surprises. That's just a haunted house game. Straightforward, exploring a starship and things go horribly nasty. That's very, very basic. I'm very pleased with that. That came out this year. I do have an idea for another adventure called the AMC 222 Report, which I ran for Victory Condition Gaming and all the fellas on there, which I was very happy with. I'm doing an adventure like that as well. That should be coming out soon. But I'm also working on a follow-up to the game with extra rules. Possibly the Starship rules and a more detail about the history of Earth and the corporations and how all that fits and works in together. And believe it or not, I'm also working on a miniatures game. They're using the same rule setup, but as for 15mm miniatures, science fiction miniatures, I'm making it as simple as possible. Playtesting on that's going really, really well, which I'm really, really happy with. I don't know, quite know what I'm going to do with it yet. There's a lot of miniatures games out there, but the system lent itself quite well to little skirmish games. So I'm working on that at the moment. And that's pretty much all I'm allowed to talk about. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. And that's fine. I don't know what it is with you brits and your miniatures but uh i don't
1: use use miniatures in my games but i found a shop online which did these little miniatures and the way that were designed the old 1980s looked to them 15 mil miniatures and they were just perfect for those dark places i don't collect miniatures i haven't got any miniatures the only miniatures i've got were given to me as gifts and they're still in their boxes in the cupboard somewhere Uh, but these were just absolutely spot on and i thought i've never done miniatures miniature game design before i'll give it a bit of a shot and see how i get on and it's actually going really really well it's great fun it's really good i can't paint worth anything. my painting skills are non-existent. When I used to play Warhammer 40k, I used to buy the miniatures. The only reason I chose Blood Angels is so that I could just dip them in red paint and just say these are mine because I had absolutely (laughs) no skill at all as far as painting miniatures was concerned. So yeah, but uh, miniatures are are a lot of fun, but I don't use them in my games. I'm very theater of the mind and this game is designed with that in mind as well. So everything takes place in the imagination. I'll I'll only use counters and make little maps, which I can very quickly draw on if it's a complicated situation. But other than that, no, I try to stay away from miniatures. (laughs) Uh, I I like using
0: a battle map for certain games I like to have some sort of visual reference for yeah. D&D I don't get too detailed I'm fine yeah. with just you know pawns essentially but absolutely I oh, no like...
1: counters even I mean I, at the moment I used to run games for my family and we used to use the plastic figures out of the Dungeons and Dragons board game and they did absolutely fine absolutely no problem at all and they were great I have no problem with that I used to enjoy using miniatures for the D&D fourth edition because the game sort of lent itself to those kind of that kind of play it was very much a miniatures game and it was great fun I really really enjoyed it but other than that no miniatures nine times out of ten I won't use
0: them at my table yeah and it is Game dependent, you know. I, I feel D D needs yep. a battle map. This game, I don't think necessarily would. So okay, and so then, where would you direct listeners to pick up a copy of those Dark Places? It is available at your local. It should be it's available
1: at your local friendly gaming store, so they can order it in for you. You can get it on the usual outlets of Amazon, all bookstores. So all the big bookstores you can get them from, or order it in. It's available directly from Osprey Games, OspreyGames.com. They've got a little role playing section there, which you can get it from. But you can also get it on EPUB and PDF and Kindle. You can get it on drive through rpg as well so basically yeah if you type in those dark places rpg on your browser you'll have plenty of options as to where you can get it from it's, it's all over the place excellent
0: and where would you direct them to stay in touch with you and your projects and everything
1: i spend a lot of time on twitter so if you want to go to twitter i am john mark hicks that's j-o-n M-A-R-K-H-I-C-K-S and uh, my username on Twitter is somebody wake up Hicks and you'll also find me at a place called farsightblogger.blogspot.com I don't use it that often as much, as often as I used to but if I've got any upcoming news or releases that's where I usually put it first. Excellent,
0: alright we'll get links to that in the show notes of course so cool. thank you so much John, anything you want to say before we sign off here?
1: It's been an absolute pleasure, uh, I know that I ramble and I tend to go off on tangents and I do apologise for if I don't make any sense at some point but I'm sure if you listen back to it two or three times it will make sense after a little while but i need to thank you very much for having me on Uh, i really do appreciate your time with this and thank you very much for the invite an absolute pleasure
0: Thank you again, Jonathan, for stopping by the Guild Hall to tell us about the lucrative opportunities that await us in those dark places of deep space. We believe all listeners should order a copy of this game from your friendly local game store. Since it is necessary equipment, those of us who are already part of the crew can simply use our ID chips and the company will cover it. The RPG, Those Dark Places, provides tabletop role players with a system that is incredibly simple, yet satisfyingly complete, suited both for one-shots and long-term campaigns, and perfect for quick and easy online play. So, if your game group has not yet applied to begin your fruitful careers at Cambridge Wallace Incorporated, then there has never been a better time. Those who apply now and sign on for a short 25-year employment contract will be rewarded with a large incentive bonus upon completion. Some terms and conditions do apply. To be considered eligible for this retirement offer, crew members first have to survive. Before we close the capsule, we at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Additional music in this episode was provided by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio logo design for our show was done by Elijah Artwork for this episode was provided by Hodag RPG. Special thanks this week to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast, Brian Fitz Fitzpatrick at Mobius Adventures, Rico Las Weishaupt, and S.L. McClellan for their help in completing this episode. And as always, thank you to all listeners. If you are enjoying the show, please rate and review at Apple Podcasts, and subscribe Wherever you get your podcast. That concludes our eighth episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, all you catatonic doctors and shocked security officers, we escaped again. But remember, next time, we might not be so lucky.